Streaming audio is made possible by Hungry Harvest, delivering farm-fresh produce and grocery staples to your door. Every delivery allows you to support local donations that fight hunger in the community. Learn more at HungryHarvest.net. This episode is brought to you by Next One Up. Next One Up transforms the lives of young men in Baltimore City by providing long-term mentoring and coaching during the critical ages of 13 to 24. Innovative programming blends a focus on academics, athletics, and leadership to infuse out of school with purpose and help young men create a dynamic and concrete vision for their future. Next One Up, transforming the lives of young men in Baltimore City by supporting and advancing their academic, athletic, and social development. Learn more, donate, or get involved at nextoneup.org. But it's epitomized in the first few seconds of the song. Like, all you need to do to get the idea of what would become the DNA of Matmus is listen to the first five seconds of The Art of Noise is close to the edit because you've got an object getting chopped up and turned into a riff for rhythmic pop music that's instrumental, that's a collage, that's referencing a long history of avant-garde strategies that doesn't have anything to do with people expressing their inner emotions. It's not about the programming team wanting to say something about cars. It's literally as obvious as it seems, but it's incredibly funky and fun, and I just love that song. This is Essential Tremors. I'm Lee Gardner. I'm Matt Byers. The idea behind this show is to have musicians and other creators talk about songs that shaped who they are. We're not looking for favorite songs necessarily. We're also not looking for songs that they'd choose to take with them if they were stranded on a desert island. What we're looking for are songs that have significance to them. Songs that might have changed the course of their creative lives, or their lives in general. Electronic duo Matmus has been making one-of-a-kind, adventurous, and deeply creative music for more than 25 years. Often composing from self-imposed constraints, such as only using samples called from plastic surfaces for 2019's Plastic Anniversary, M.C. Schmidt and Drew Daniel specialize in sampling unusual sources and rearranging them into mesmerizing geometric patterns. Having resided in Baltimore since 2007, Daniel is currently an associate professor in the Department of English at Johns Hopkins University, and Schmidt MCs the High Zero Festival of Experimental Improvised Music. They have collaborated with musicians ranging from Bjork to Yola Tango, and their newest release, The Consuming Flame, open exercises in group form, features 99 different contributors. This episode was recorded in front of a live audience at Fadenzonen in Baltimore in the fall of 2019. The first song Daniel chose as being formative for him was Close to the Edit by Art of Noise. 
so good. It's so good. So I love that song so much. What a jam. Why did you pick that song? Well, because he actually likes the Yes song. Close to the Edge? Well, it's complicated. No, not now, close uh, to the Edge. Oh, owner of a Lonely Heart. Owner of a Lonely, of a lonely heart, heart. And Yeah, Martin, don't give it all away. This is my song. <laughs> Why do I love it? I love it um, because of the years in the mid-80s when I was that most tragic of things, a southern white breakdancer in Kentucky. So picture, if you will, little Drew Daniel going to um, Carousel, the shop in the mall, where he bought parachute pants that Renew. were like shiny black um, plastic with lots of zippers and imagine a bunch of red bandanas that are tied to my elbows and my knees and I have seen the films break in and I have a piece of cardboard and I spin around desperately trying to learn knee spins, back spins. I'm especially into popping and locking and the tick. I like to imagine that I'm stealing my opponent's face in a breakdance battle. He still does this. And I ingest the face, and then I vomit it up onto them again in a weird kind of contorted miming. Um, I don't know anything really about breakdancing that doesn't come from extremely mainstream culture, but I love it. You mean, I mean, did you get as obscure as breakdancing to electric? Yes, boogaloo? absolutely. Oh, so. The, and the, the point, right, is that that's um, based entirely on a set of music that you can breakdance effectively to, and there's a canon of breakdance music. And I have a, a mono boombox, battery-powered, which I've painted with, like, rainbow colors, um, and I obsessively play Shannon, Let the Music Play, um, uh, Shaka Khan, Ain't Nobody, uh, because it was used in one of the films... Um, and of course, Art of Noise. Now the big Art of Noise break, you know, breakdance jam is Beatbox, but close to the edit is also their other big hit from the same period. And um, Art of Noise is a weird proposition in a lot of ways because it more or less violates a lot of our norms about what an inspired musical uh, artist is, who they are, and why they make their music. So the Art of Noise is the name invented by a journalist for a trio of people that were part of Trevor Horn's production team. And he was in the middle of uh, producing the comeback album for Yes, the 90125, or I don't know, some string of numbers. Anyway, it's the album with Owner of a Lonely Heart and Leave It. And it's filled with um, very conspicuous displays of the programming and sequencing capacity of the Fairlight sequencer and sampler, which was an incredibly expensive piece of musical gear. Very few people could afford this. Kate Bush used it. Trevor Horn used it. So his sort of... 40, 40 grand. Yeah, insanely expensive. There's nothing punk about the Fairlight. You can now do on your phone you need a everything mortgage. that it could do. Yeah, now there's an app for that. But, <laughs> but in the moment, the Fairlight is what was used to create that initial riff of the, the car starting and that being chopped and cut and repitched into a riff. And the essential premise of that action, right, is also quite didactically expressed in naming the band after the Luigi Rossolo Futurist Manifesto, The Art of Noises, which became The Art of Noise in the singular. But it's epitomized in the first few seconds of the song. Like, all you need to do to get the idea of what would become the DNA of Matmus is listen to the first five seconds of The Art of Noises close to the edit, because you've got an object getting chopped up and turned into a riff for rhythmic pop music that's instrumental, that's a collage that's referencing a long history of avant-garde strategies that doesn't have anything to do with people expressing their inner emotions. It's not about the programming team wanting to say something about cars. It's literally as obvious as it seems, but it's incredibly funky and fun, and I just love that song. Um, were you already playing music at that point? or, or No, make... no. I couldn't play music. I have no talent. I had had some piano lessons. Still true. And I, it became apparent that I had no understanding of what music was when I was told, like, oh, you need to write a little mu musical melody in piano lessons. And I did it entirely visually. Like, I drew a picture of, like, pyramids and a palm tree with notes. You know, like, I was 
like pretentious and inept from the very beginning. <laughs> well, you play that you play that right, you get a PhD for yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> from it's little called, acorns, mighty oaks do grow. It's called <laughs> visual competency. Yeah, it was a graphic score, man. A gra- yeah, I couldn't remember the word that was called. Yeah, no, I, score. I didn't play music. I danced. There was one day that was a hilarious breakdance injury at home where I was spinning around super fast and I was like god I finally got it and the backspin is really working and then my head slammed into the leg of a table like really 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 hard my parents were quite concerned um but you know no more breakdancing dedication to the craft this is what happens yeah um I mean I and then drugs the other thing about Art of Noise and that era of samplers that sound like samplers I think that's a really important moment in production history because it's flagging the artificiality implicit in the whole idea of like studio as instrument. And there's a lot of forgotten pop music from that era that really showed off the sampler as a sampler, whether it's like Yellow, a song like Oh Yeah, or there's this forgotten 80s uh, band Eben Ozen that had a hit called A-E-I-O-U, Sometimes Why. Loved them. Loved that shit. And it really hasn't aged well. It's not something that people are like cuddling up to in like their Stranger Things, like faux nostalgic you know, Corey Hart was Beethoven kind of like revision of history. Like it's, somehow it's true. I have tried to listen to that recently and I was like, Oh yeah. No, no even Ozen. I don't even Ozen. That's this, if you, tr- oh. but I loved it then. Yeah. Yeah. The album was called feeling cavalier. I, I Googled those guys oh, long wow. ago. Cause uh-huh. I got, I was like, yeah, even Ozen. What uh-huh. happened to even Ozen? <laughs> and, and you know, I think maybe one of them is dead, but not the guy who looks like David Lee Roth. I was fascinated. Oh yeah. 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 The they they kind of mixed it up. These synth pop guys look uh-huh. like David Lee Roth. Yeah. Arena, so that was odd. Ooh. Was so there, does Billy Ellish know who Eben Ozen are? But that technology that sounds artificial and that knows it sounds artificial, I think we can say proto vaporwave, like this a sort w- of. Well, this was the essence of the eighties. Yeah, that know? it winks at but you. But it's about born its out own. of it's born out of necessity. It's like these things sound fake, so we'll own it sounding right. Fake. Like I the mean, jingle jingle cats. Like we, no one believes the cats are singing. Yeah, everyone knows about the machine, and that's fine. <laughs> That's part of the pleasure of it. It's what makes it fun. <laughs> well, so you mentioned that you know you can hear the beginnings of Matmos in the beginning. In Art of, of Noise, piece. is that something you? That wasn't something you thought about at the time. Is no, because I didn't. To you later? I didn't want to make music. I I've, the reason I made music, which started I guess like four years later, would be reading William S. Burroughs and reading all these descriptions of experiments with tape recorders and thinking that that sounded cool and fun, and that I should start to collect cheap tape recorders and like experiment with them. Because the first tape recorder I owned had a broken microphone where when I would record my voice, it would sound really distorted and monstrous. I thought this was really exciting because it was like you can use sound to transform who you are. Like you could be this wimpy, shrimpy person and then you sound super terrifying as, as audio and that like, whoa, this is a way to estrange myself or like change myself. And I thought that was incredibly interesting. And so I just started to fuck around with it. But it wasn't through a sense of like, I want to write songs or I even know what it would mean to write a song. But when you hear something like Art of Noise, it's like, well, the song is more of a collage. Like, there isn't really a core to close to the edit. It's a bunch of breaks and stabs and riffs in a, in a row, but there isn't really a center and there isn't a person. There's an assemblage, you know, and I th- that's really interesting, you know, and maybe it permitted somebody that doesn't think in terms of melodies to feel like, oh, I can make something like that, you know, maybe. I don't know. That's a bit grandiose, but do you, yeah. can you still do the moves? Um, I do have been known. That, I have been known. See, every year there's a Shakespeare Association of America conference where there's something called the Malone Society Dance, and it's a dance of Shakespeareans. So it's mostly people in their 40s and 50s and 60s in tweed. And at that dance, I have been known to do a backspin on the floor. So I only break That's dance. That's a very high <laughs> price of admission to see yeah. you do that. I only break dance in front of Shakespeareans. So, I mean, it's, I think it's important to note that, like, we're playing all this, like, like really successful slick pop music, and in fact, we don't make that. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think by any means we should be, by playing these things and saying, yeah, this is what led us to do the janky crap that we do. Like, close... Close to the that song, that's incredibly successful. It was top ten, slick success. We don't do we don't do that, nor do we particularly try to do that. But 
nonetheless inspiring. The second song Daniel chose as essential to his formation as an artist was Moonshake by Can. The next song, I guess, historically would be a song that I only discovered, I guess, in college, um, uh, Moonshake by Can. Oh See, my God. I mean, the thing with great repetition is that the, the thing you're repeating has to be fantastically worth repeating over and over. Yeah, I mean, that's a beautiful song because in some ways I think it, it squares the circle of like immediate groove and premeditation because you've got this funkiness this like sweaty funky relentlessness combined with this weird studio cut up that Holger's done of of odd noises and odd percussive strikes and zips and zaps and it's like squaring the circle of like being in the moment as a tight ass band just playing with like the studio and the labor of cutting with the razor blade and assembling a bunch of weird noises into this alphabetized string of events and like the fact that both of those kinds of approaches can fold into one piece of music, it's so beautiful to me. Um, I didn't know about Can until I started to hang out with Martin. And so in a way, like knowing about the German records and their approach was part of like getting to know Martin and us becoming a couple and us becoming a band. And honestly, we didn't share our list with each other. And he has a Holger track, too. Yeah, so whoops. there's like a strange, you know, not on purpose, couple really. brain moment of like, n- no kidding. We we like the same stuff. Um, but yeah, with Moonshake, part of it, too, though, is the beauty of estranging language a little bit. Like, I feel like like my whole life I've listened to that song. And I haven't understood the words, but I can phonetically sing them. It's like the Misfits uh, thrash record where I can do every like thrash song. It's like, you know, like I know the like the the jabbering, but I don't know the words. And looking at the words of Moonshake, I've always heard it as. That's the chorus. But it's Damo saying, let me feel the moon which is deep. Wow. What a bizarre, impossible desire, and what a strange way with regard to intonation to say the sentence, let me feel the moon. Like D- no DJ Unseen World. No aspect. Can you roll it again? Can you maybe try to <laughs> It's at the end. Yeah, the fun. end of the song is where he does the let me feel the moon over and over, and it sounds absolutely nothing like the words let me feel the moon. <laughs> You can kind of hear it. And like, you know, anyway I want, anyway I want. Yeah. Um, I remember Beck did an interview with Japanese journalists where they asked him why he sang "Floating on a Pentagram," and he was singing "Soy un Perdedor." from Loser, but he said that floating on a pentagram was better than any lyric he could ever write. And I think the beauty of Damo's way of saying English, you know, it's been a subject of other songs. Like, there's this incredible song by The Fall called I Am Damo Suzuki that's about being Damo Suzuki. 
And it's what have you got in that paper, paper bag? bag. <laughs> you know, it's just got this awareness of the rhythmic potential of, of language when you're not stressing, you know, the the alleged proper intonation. And what is that anyway? British English, Southern English, California English, like who owns English? Nobody owns English. So yeah, I think it's just a beautiful song and a beautiful performance. You know, a lot of it is about Jackie's drumming and the way that you can hear an awareness of James Brown and you can hear an awareness of, like, American black musics and R&B and that, that they're being refracted through a funny sort of prism in Cologne in 1973. The other thing that's cool about Moonshake, I think, is that it's on a record, Future Days, which has all these very sprawling, ambient, kind of pastoral things. In fact, when I started a DJ as a college radio DJ, it was kind of notorious that you could tell when the DJ needed to use the bathroom because they would put on Cannes Bel Air because it's 18 minutes long. So it's like the perfect bathroom break song, you know. So on this record with lots of like long pieces, there's this little pop jewel of three minutes that's Moonshake. It's so good, you know. I mean, I don't know. It just... Yeah, I get sentimental about it. It's such a great song. And it, it just gives me a feeling of joy, you know, and I, rem I connected, I suppose, to like meeting Martin and falling in love with Martin and starting our band and believing in Aww. like, I don't know. Yeah, I'm going to get all schmaltzy and be a little <laughs> puddle of eggnog here. But, you know, the point is just that there's, there's an incredible um, compression and lyricism and oddity in that music. Final song Daniel chose as being crucial to him was Rock and Roll Station by Nurse with Wound. I'm in a rock and roll session and I'm waiting for Michael, who's not here. Brand new Cadillac, gross module. Sweat. Do you remember? It was 1959. The observatory. What a strange story. Rock and roll session is a session where we can do what we want to do. Sweat. Gross module. Jack's bicycle is music. Gross module. Shred. Everything is possible. 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 Rock and roll station is a second pirate session of a strange wax. Gross module. Wow. I love this song, and hearing it again reminds me of one of the most fun things we've had, uh, we've done while DJing, which is that you can sync this up to Lil Kim and Notorious B.I.G.'s I've Got a Crush on You, and it's the exact same tempo, and they just go so well together. Like, the Nurse with Wound, Lil Kim continuum is super tight. So that's just a freebie for anybody out there who's, like, thinking up some sick blends. Try it out. Which, which we, <laughs> we're only allowed to DJ in some very specific sort of Context. situations because we're not good DJs. But uh, because of things <laughs> like playing that and then... Because it's... But, yeah, you just go back and forth, back and forth. And I, I just want to give <laughs> you all sort of an explanation about the dancing thing that we were... In Japan, if you DJ... No one will dance. They will look at you DJing. I can't explain this. Like, I have guesses. It's like a respect thing, I guess. I gave a little speech in a bar about this size. We were DJing. There were more people. Um, I'm, you know, yeah, it was pretty crowded. Uh, and we were, I was like, you guys, we are just going to play background music. It was like 7 in the afternoon, 7 in the evening. You know, felt like the afternoon. I was like, talk amongst yourselves. We're just playing records. No big deal. Absolute pin drop silence. Uh, I had it translated. 
they were like, huh. we, 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 you know, we're just like laptop DJing. Like, absolute pin drop silence. Two songs later, I'm like, oh my God, no one is saying anything. Like, we're just playing songs from a laptop. Like, please just talk to each other. Oh my God, it's not that interesting. No one is saying a word. So earlier, we had DJed at a thing. Um, at a disco with blinky lights and mirror balls and stuff, same exact thing, drove us insane. Um, no one, dan- like, we were like, dance, dance, oh, playing the funkiest music that, you know, humankind ever came up with, nothing. And w- we were like, what was that? What happened? Later to our handlers. And they were like, oh, you know, you kind of have to dance. When you're DJing, you have you to show have them to, how like, to how you do, want them to dance. Like, you, like, go like like a Julie show, Cruz director show that it's dancing aerobics instructor kind of mode. thing. And so, in this tiny bar in whatever hipster you know cool super cool neighborhood, it was Bar Ishi in Tokyo. Yeah, it's an extremely cool. There were like all these like you know, it's like, where like Otomo Yoshihide plays. Yeah, noise all the, musicians like, noise there were like, oh plays. my god, there's you know, and so, you know, all sitting in this bar. So I'm like, all right, let's funk it up, Drew. <laughs> and you know, he puts on whatever. I got five on it, or you know, whatever. And I get up and dance. Every single person gets up and starts dancing, and we have this crazy, super fun dance party. And everyone had, like, I was doing, like, Dan Deacon shit, you know, like, oh, make a pyramid, like a tunnel, and go underneath, and, like, every, and I was like, oh, I'm 55-year-old chain smoker, and, and I sit down, and everyone sits down. I was like, no, and I'm like, yep, life coach. Live by the sword, die okay. by the sword. <coughs> Wait, um, can we talk about Nurse with Wound, though? Because this yeah, is my song, and you I just hijacked just, oh, it to tell a super long story. I was just trying to explain cool. why we got up and danced oh, earlier. Okay. All right. You missed that. Um, back to Nurse with Wound uh, rock and roll station. There's an interesting kind of historical hall of mirrors that happens for me listening to it in 2019 to a song that came out in 1994, which is a cover of a song that was made in 1977, which is about a recording that was made in 1959. So you have this kind of like vanishing point disappearance of the historical horizon line encoded into the song, and it keeps enriching itself every time you listen to it because it's about nostalgia for the idea that recording sessions are spaces of possibility where anything can happen. That's the lyric. So it's a song by Jacques Barocal, this weird French guy that Jason Willett really loves who's apparently like a totally unstable maniac that has guns and like is scary to hang out with but is incredibly brilliant. Um, These may just be Jason's <laughs> stories that inform, you know, like might be just Jason. But it's it's a French musician in the late 70s writing a song about this guy, Vince Taylor, who was a like black leather wearing British bad boy that made rockabilly. And his hit was Brand New Cadillac. And it's a great song. It sounds like the Batman theme or something. It's real twangy. It's real like raw and raunchy. It's kind of, um, it's the epitome of like a rock and roll energy. And then... In 1977, Jacques Baracal makes this song that's like this strange reflection on a lost moment of recording. And the main musical instrument, aside from this like bass note that just holds a pattern, is this sound that apparently is a bicycle wheel, like spinning and being played with and being manipulated. And it's referenced in the Nurse with Wound cover of the song, but it doesn't actually appear. It's on a different Nurse with Wound record where the bicycle bell is used in this long, hour-long drone piece called Salt Marie Celeste, which is an incredibly psychedelic and disturbing, like, psychoactive drone bath. Um, And I don't know, like, to me, when I heard Rock and Roll Station in 1994, it opened this sort of door of possibility for me, because I've been a... I'd been a Nurse with Wound fanboy since I was a teenager, like, and I loved industrial noise and the sort of cut-up, surreal aesthetic of Nurse with Wound, but I'd already always felt like it was about a certain kind of avant-gardeism that had nothing to do with funkiness and rhythm. And Rock and Roll Station is like this weird Nurse with Wound hip-hop record where there's this incredibly loud kicks and it 
absolutely has this kind of locked on head nodding quality, which is why you can mix it into Notorious B.I.G. and Lil' Kim and it works so beautifully. Like there's something really cringy about the idea of white avant-garde is trying to be like hip hop and it doesn't, it's not a hip hop song, but it reflects a lot of the same values of like the rhythmic cadence is a source of musical information, which is already true in like Robert Ashley's music that was a huge influence on Nurse of the Wound. But I don't know, for me in 94, like that's when Martin and I were starting to make the first Mapmus music together. Like we were working with sequencers and samplers and starting to make music. And then I went away for a year to school to Oxford. And uh, then I came back and we listened to the music we'd made after a year and a half and we still liked it. And so we decided to put out our first album in 97, you know, but 94 was really when, when the, when our band started and I was going to raves and like listening to hip hop and listening to noise. And Martin was playing me a lot of, German experimental music and synth music and Matmus kind of crystallized at around the moment that that um, that Nurse of the Wound made that statement and it's always held up for me as as this model I think because of the core of the song is is that assertion anything is possible 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 like it keeps hovering in this moment of like what is a recording what is a recording session what could happen and I think that's what I find ultimately like so beautiful about the song. Like, and maybe it's not even Nurse with Wound. It's like the Jacques Baracal idea, you know. Can we do a little timeline here from, uh-huh. from teenage uh, breakdancer to teenage uh, Nurse with Wound? Oh, boy? yeah, yeah. It happened pretty quick. Um, I got into punk rock and hardcore, and it was through like kids at school that were playing tapes on the ride to school of um, Butthole Surfers and Minor Threat and Black Flag. So I went from like being into hip hop to being into hip hop and Prince to being into hip hop, Prince and Black Flag, and then pretty quickly like listening to punk records. Through going to punk rock record stores, I would look for bands that had shocking names, and I found this record by somebody called Throbbing Gristle, and I didn't know what it was. I thought it would be punk, because the name sounded kind of punk. And as I bought a Throbbing Gristle record, and uh, and it was amazing, and I found it so disturbing and uh, incredibly exciting, and it made me want to find out more about industrial music and noise. And so through TG, I learned about, you know, Coil and Einstein's and Neubotten, Leibach, um, things like this, you know, and I didn't know about concrete, I would say, until I met Martin and then we started to talk about music concrete. But yeah, like by the end of high school, I was into, I was still into hip hop, but I was also into it by way of like sampling aesthetics, which I also saw happening in like a, like a Meat Beat Manifesto record or like in the prim- primitive, like rhythmic tape manipulations that are happening in industrial music like there's a kind of continuum between hip-hop production and and like harsh noise uh around the the like foregrounding of technology and processing like processing music you know so to me it was kind of just it felt like a natural progression even though like obviously the sort of racial politics of like who consumes what and who enjoys what you know might be kind of fraught i don't think i really saw that at the time First song Schmidt chose as being formative for him was It's My Party by Leslie Gore. Party and I'll Cry If I Want To, produced 
Why I can't Quincy Jones. Quincy by Quincy Jones. But what year? I don't know. Nineteen sixty-three. Sixty-three. The year before I was born. I mean, it's not about the fact that that scenario described in the song is every gay man who has fallen in love with a straight guy and what watched him walk away with any girl. It's not because of that. No, definitely not. It's the production. It's the fact that there's this entire thing that happens in two minutes and 15 seconds. And this is something I use in the studio when we work all the time. Like, do we really need to paste that out 75 times? Because it's my party and I'll cry if I want to. Gets it all done in two minutes and 15 seconds. Like, it's a miracle of pop efficiency. Brutal. Brutal. Hearing and it, it's, it, I think it must be Klaus Ogerman. Yeah, Klaus Ogerman is probably the, the conductor of the orchestra. Conductor and arranger. And, and his Watusi Trumpets album is a big platter at our house. Yeah. Klaus Ogerman, anybody? Amazing, Check he, him easy out. listening. Oh yeah, of course he rules. Did you know? Did you know he would like? I he's the on and on. Uh, uh, um, you don't own me. You, yeah, uh, you don't own me. It's yeah, Klaus, Ogerman Klaus Ogerman and Quincy Ogerman. Jones again. Like mm-hmm. what a team, dream team. Yeah. So, do you remember when you might have first heard this? Or, or <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Martin, no, hey, just, thanks, folks. No, it's That's not it. historic. For me, this was not historical. It was a sort of like it's important to our whatever studio practice, or, or if you if you will. When you sniffed a lot of glue, you just don't I don't work. remember anything. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I really don't. The, my other one I, is this like a reveal thing where I'm not supposed to talk about the other. The Frankenstein Symphony, I would have had no idea it was a, if I heard it as recently as I did. I was going to say something like, oh, yeah, I heard this when I was very young, and it influenced me. I looked, I was like, well, that's impossible. It came out in 1997. Uh, so, yeah, I'm not a very good rememberer. I mean, Leslie Gore is interesting, too, because she was in the closet. She's, a, les- she's a lesbian. Okay. And came out about that. With with Ellen uh, in two thousand four or so, as one does. Yeah, so you know, <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> but it works with what you're I saying did it about in the smoking area of Northgate High. About a weird queer pathos that that you can. Rear she may pro- have been there actually. You can rear project into the song. That's right. You know, which could be like biographical. Oh, also Leslie Gore, like it, like Leslie Goreovitz or whatever, like just yeah, just like uh, the Ebenozen guy. Uh huh. Pop music, Shonda for the goyim. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a real mitzvah for the for for us. <laughs> I don't know. It's I feel like Robin owes Leslie Gore for you know, I keep dancing on my own. It's an interesting like party music with pain at the center, and that's already what's going on. And it's my party. Like it even knows about the circulation of itself, right? That play all my records, keep dancing all night. Like it's a record that knows about the purpose of records to produce collective celebration. But her whole point is like, but I'm cut out from that. Sad, man. Go, Drew, go. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't, it's not a, it's not like, I mean, it's historically important for me because we've been doing this for 25 years and I've been using that record as an example tiresomely for 25 years. Well, that or, or Ain't No Mountain High Enough, I think that's also two minutes long. I mean, those are incredible songs because they're just so short and they get everything done yeah. that they need to achieve. There's even a breakdown for dancing in the middle. I mean, it's got it all. But so at this point, do you actually have to say it? Is there just you, some kind of shorthand? <laughs> like Yes. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> uh, we have had that argument within the last 24 hours yeah. about length and of course, then we saw, last night we saw um, uh, Thurston Moore uh, uh, ensemble or whatever. And wow, is there a lot of like necessary repetition in that? There's a lot of repetition. Drew and I looked at each other without even needing to. To uh, there was some mm. passage that was like, yeah, keep looping, don't stop. And we looked at each other, and I was like, all right. You're right. You're loops. right. Loops are cool. Just earlier, we had been arguing. I was like, "There is no need to loop that for a minute and a half." But sometimes there is. 
So short is good, but long is I good too. I haven't changed my opinion <laughs> about that song. So, just so you know. Yeah. The second song Schmidt chose is essential to him was Persian Love by Holger Zukai. of didn't it was a there was a 12 inch already an odd thing to me I you know I was like not eight 18 something you know young and there was just a 12 inch of tur- what is the song? turtles have short turtles legs. have short legs and the graphics on that don't explain much it was a 12 inch of it I didn't even I thought maybe the band was called turtles have short legs and the song you know Except he says, turtles have the short legs, not for, for over and over and over. I was like, okay, the song. That's the song, not the band. But I knew nothing. There was no one in this house to explain to me. I just found it, loved it, listened to it over and over. I was like, what is that? However, at that time, I already knew I loved this guy, Holger Chukai. And that's the next song we're going to talk Who about. was the bass player from Can? But I learned, again, backwards, I knew about several of Holger Chukai's records without knowing that he had been in a band. Like, I thought he was some weird German so- soloist dude. He's very lucky to have this best friend, Lisa Woodward, who was obsessed with, well, whatever, obsessed. Like, she was really into... Uh, it's, did I say what year it was? It's like 1981 or something like that. Um, suburb records, you know, must only records only come, music only comes from record stores. So you have to go to record stores and trawl through the records and see like what is what. Brian Eno plays on some of some Holger Chukai records and that was enough for us because Brian Eno played on David Bowie records and we knew David Bowie was cool and the, and from there like oh Brian Eno and from Brian Eno then but that's not actually how I get Holger Chukai but that's how like we decided it was okay um uh David Burr, no Peter Gabriel put out was started this thing called the World of Music and Dance Festival in the late 70s which was like what is now i i find very unfortunately reviled as cultural appropriation like that song is literally cultural appropriation and to me like it taught me so much about the and made me so curious about the music of the world that I would have had no exposure to, you know, at that age and at that time, were it not for for this thing that he did, and he was interested in like, 
you know, he presented people from, you know, the whatever quote-unquote third world and what they did, and then people from the West, uh, or whatever, Europe and the United States, uh, using that stuff and then their stuff as, you know, so, so all three-thirds of this sort of, uh, y- y- you know, thing. And that th- that song has so many, like, that the idea that it's taken from shortwave, so it's literally someone in Europe, like, tuning in another world and then stealing it and building a song around that. And then there's all these crazy techniques in that, that sped-up guitar thing where he's playing electric guitar to a slowed-down tape so that he can play these crazy patterns. It's a lot like Les Paul. Yeah, well, that effect Les Paul of the does double, the double speed same thing. And it yeah. produces that chirpy, chipmunky, super shimmery, bright sound. Well, and you can play more complicated parts because you're playing to something that's like... So if you play fast, then it, you know, you can do these crazy, more complicated sounding things. Or that's what I was thinking yeah. when I was 18. I was like, that's how he's so sick and fast. He like plays those super fast and because he's cheating. Scarlatti and, and on I helium. And this like, <laughs> oh, cheating. You can use technology to make up for your shortcomings. Like, oh, I'm not a very good guitar player, so I'll slow down what I'm playing to, and so then my playing will appear to be fast and clever. Because Holger Chuke, you know, I, I don't think, you know, he was a bass guitar player, but then he also plays, uh, he, he's playing the French horn that's in that, as well as cutting all the tape and the bass and yada, and the cool yada. synth parts. We were talking about the the can book uh, before we got started with mm. the recording, mm. and one of the things that comes up in that is they were they were as the band went on, they were kind of mad at him because mm. he was not a good bass player, which right. now sounds <laughs> ridiculous because he's an awesome bass player. But they were like. Yeah, the chops aren't there, but yeah, there's so yeah. many great ideas there. More like right. Jaco Pastorius, you know, like when in fact he's putting exactly the right thing in the right place and nothing more, which is better than a lot of bass players. So were you playing guitar? Were you playing music oh, no. at that point? No, 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 not at all. I mean, we had this idea, we were like, we should have a band. Like that was, you know, none of us played instruments. I had piano lessons in sixth grade. And then I got Fs in sixth grade. That's right. Imagine that. And my father, my father was like, no more piano lessons for you. You're doing badly in school. So he, in fact, cut off the only thing that I was ever going to get any better at. Um, and I never got any better at school, but I certainly never got any better at piano either. <laughs> when I got to college, it, I was like, oh, I can kind of play the piano. And I used to smoke weed and play the piano. There was a piano in the, in the lobby of every dorm of this college that I went to. And I would tour around every <laughs> lobby and just play the piano and hope someone would come well I would hope someone would come and go you're great but really I, it was like I hope someone would come and talk to me <laughs> because I didn't know anyone but that didn't work and it was all drugs instead that's the only reason I got to know anyone was drugs <laughs> not me, not music yeah and yeah. and what do you know I got to know a bunch of idiots <laughs> But, I, but anyway, my point being, I got much better at piano because seven nights a week I would play the piano for like two hours a night with my sixth grade skills. And, and, and Matmus was born. Ta-da! On the back of my amazing piano skills. Well, so did you ever meet any of the now mostly departed members of Can? We did go to see a Holger show, and we were... <laughs> It was weird because he was jamming with this techno guy and he was doing like shortwave and the techno guy was one of the dudes from Air Liquid. I remember he had a lot of like clunky silver skull jewelry. Spiky jewelry. Yeah, it was was an unfortunate concert. Very styled. And we were kind of too shy to really, like we gave Holger a Matmus CD. Uh, This is when we hadn't put out any records. It was like a CDR. We were like, we love your music. You know, like it was just one of these things. Like it happens. He looked at it like I gave him a turd. (laughs) 
Yeah, it was literally like, what is this? He was like, <laughs> and walked away. And that, and that was that. That's cool. Whatever. I mean, he clearly was some kind of dickhead. Like, have you seen him in that uh, in the documentary about uh, Connie Plank? Oh, it's brutal. He's it's only so on brutal. screen for like three minutes. So th- they go to his house. So it's Connie it's Plank's, Connie Plank's son, son making and, this documentary. And the documentary and Holger is, is, is like, yeah, you are really kind of a mommy's boy. He really did not like or care about you. <laughs> Cut. It's, it's so it's so ice cold. It's Who just... is in a documentary made by their son and say to the camera like, "Yeah, he did not know or care about you." <laughs> yeah, it's brutal. Even if it's true, you don't say that on camera. Like, you know, maybe after some beers and like a teary memory, like you know. <laughs> He was not as good as you remember. <laughs> Maybe so much. I'm not so sure about those hi-hats, you know? So we still like Holger. But anyway, but like, Holger yeah, guy. Nice I mean, dude. Who cares no. whether he was a... I, like, I don't care. He's amazing. Um, it changed my life completely. I love everything up to a point where it's really bad. There's some <laughs> very, very bad Holger records. Woof. Stink. song Schmidt chose as being crucial to him was Frankenstein Symphony by Francis Domont. Concept 2 0 1 8 9 7 A long way from uh, it's my party. So, I don't know. I, I, it, that's where I, I'll I die why, if I want why to. Why I love it so much is really I don't hear it that. I hear it. I hear that as like beautiful. Not, no, it is not, beautiful. It is beautiful. It's doing that glassy French thing at all. Um, I don't know. That's just me. I mean, I think I think why I love it so much is because I do a lot of explaining of what music concrete is to people for people who have, have no who don't know what it is and I'm I'm like a what's the word when you try to evangelist an evangelist for musique concrete and it has a sort of rate of change that's good enough to like keep attention unlike a lot of stuff a a lot of electroacoustic music which is uh, too alienating or sticks in the same place for too long to like, here, check this out. You know, I'm forever like trying to turn kids on to weed or, you know, whatever. Like, and it sort of explains itself as it goes. It's like, it's a music made out of sounds and here you can hear all those different sounds and they change often enough so that, uh, I mean, that isn't the excerpt that I, that I usually use. It's got these like elevator motor noises and, 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 you know, the cliches of of a certain period of music. Con- this like... Yep. 
you know, these, 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 these ramps and then these punctual mo- explosions, yeah, these moves that I think are great, you know, and because I've listened to so much, it's only for, I don't know, for the serious, bitter old queen. Is it like, oh, the cliches of music concrete, right? You know, <laughs> because you have heard so much of it. Um, <laughs> I mean, I love those things. And is is Frankenstein Symphony? It's, so it's made apparently. I I learned this many years after I was proselytizing with it that it's actually he made it out of a bunch of his students' work, hmm. and that's why it's called the Frankenstein Symphony. Is because it's made out of parts of all these other people's stuff. Does that imply that all his students are dead? Uh, well, they have to be. <laughs> to him, maybe. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. You never hear. I don't know if people are mad about this or whatever. Surely it was consensual. It must have, they must have felt like it was an homage that the master would want right. to fondle their parts. He, he only has one eye, too. Right there, so there's that. <laughs> he looks really cool. Well, so what was the context, though, for, for maybe first hearing this and first kind of having that? Our friend Not put it out on a label that was a really weird label. Asphodel uh, was all over the place in the mid-'90s and kind of on a roll. It was re-releasing uh, some of Yanis Anakis' music, like La Legendaire and Persepolis. But it was same, also doing... Same label releases The Invisible Scratch Pickles. Yeah, with DJ Magic Mike, who was the turntablist for the Beastie Boys. So this was like a label that had incredible range across hip-hop and electroacoustic. But and this, this guy, Not Human, he has this vision, like, and those two things, for him... Why not? Well, they're the same. I mean, you know, they're doing... It's kind of like what Drew was just saying. It's like, take sounds and do other things with them, whether it be hip-hop or turntablism or... Noise. You know, or noise or musique concrète. It's all... It's all a continuum. Yeah, so we, we heard Frankenstein Symphony because not our friend who who uh, was one of the original industrial people as rhythm and noise, like he's in the first research book about industrial culture, that handbook. Uh, he's always been a kind of kooky guy. Uh, he did performance record on Record on Ralph Records. Yeah, like, came on out the residence and, label. Yeah. He did performance pieces in the 60s where apparently every member of the audience was put in a different wooden box that was nailed shut and they were put onto a truck and then driven to another location and unloaded. <laughs> so, like, Not Human does, like, he does it real big. Yeah. He's so it's an amazing, I mean, <laughs> for whatever personal, social reasons, boy, did he have a lot of money to play with for a while. Yeah, and, and that that's was, where that was, all that was these records came from. Mm-hmm. But we love, like, the French electroacoustic and musique concrète tradition. And you can hear a lot of the signature sounds of that kind of glassy stretching of timbres in the Francis Dumont excerpt that you just played. Like, that's now become this proprietary software called uh, GRM Tools. It's a function called Freeze, which you can do to audio. And a lot of other, like, plug-in uh, engineers are creating uh, DSP software that lets you replicate this effect, but it's a real signature sound in a lot of the electroacoustic compositions of the 90s. I think I'm not it, sure it's the great, you know, I'm not sure I would say it's one of the greatest pieces of music concrete or like greatest electroacoustic compositions. But it's juicy. But it's juicy and I like it and it's y- useful to, to me. So maybe Safely. other people have questions. No pressure, baby. If you have a question, you have to come up here and you have to say your name and, and say your question into the microphone. Oh, Lord. So this is David, and I've known uh, Martin and Drew for over a decade. And listening to your selections, it sounded like a lot of what you had chosen was, maybe not a lot, but some of what you chosen was influenced not only by sound but by place. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious what... Um, living in Baltimore for a decade, uh, more than a decade now, yeah, yeah, yeah. what that's done to your approaches to sound making in Matmos and otherwise? It's a good question. You know, I would say Baltimore changed us a lot in that we left a rich city, San Francisco, for a poor city, and that overturned a lot of our assumptions about how you make music and for whom and in what setting. It changed everything about performance, too, clubs didn't have like monitor speakers if you asked for them it was like you wanted like a coach and horses or something you know like 
it was just a totally different reality to be here. This is 10 years ago. Yeah, when we moved in 2007. Um, I would say as far as, like, sonic imprints of Baltimore, like, it's it's hard, you know, you don't want to be cliche, but I definitely feel like there's something about hearing Bring in the Cats, you know, the, the shout-out to to the whole damn choices and bring in the cats, like, like knowing what that is referencing, knowing specifically the place, the specific club, or like getting to play before, you know, it's gone now, but getting to play the paradox, you know, and like the, the specifics of what was happening with the way that club music worked in that space for a set of people at a certain time, like 4am, <laughs> you know, that, um, that I do think of as, like, a, a, a signature Baltimore sound. But, you know, I would also say that about, like, the dog synth of DJ Dog Dick, like, hearing him play the dog synth at the bank, you know. Like, that's just a signature, I'd say. Do you have Baltimore sounds, Martin, that you have in mind? Yeah, it gave me a lot of hope for what I sort of now think of as folk music. Uh, like, the the idea of noise as folk music. And it, it, I didn't understand that there was like a huge network of DIY, like venues and houses, and you know, wh- however mercurial they are, that there is th- that uh, you know, the, a lot of the people I n- know and knew in Baltimore were part of this mercurial network of like places to play or people who would put on shows. And the amazing attentiveness, I'm not willing to say that that is still existent in Baltimore, but it certainly was over the last 10 years. Um, like the idea that, that people, there was this audience, a large audience of people who were like, absolutely down for getting up and jumping up and down and screaming and mosh pitting and then the next set oh this is a really quiet thing where we all sit down and all the lights go out and you pay close attention and an audience would do that absolutely it just gave me a lot of like hope in for people an American culture, maybe, yeah, I don't which, think boy, you get in the depths of despair about American culture, don't you? And I don't know. It gave me a lot of uh, a lot of hope, and it made it more fun to think about doing things on a lower budget, uh, because Drew and I are always pretty convinced that it's all about to fall apart for us. And that made me more comfortable with that idea. Yeah, touch wood. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Yeah, I remember 10 years ago, we, 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 we had Dan Higgs as our neighbor, on, and we lived on 33rd, and all the houses face inward on this kind of courtyard that we call the, like, rat observation tower. This is just, like, rats and garbage, because the frat boys won't cover their garbage cans. So literally, some of the Wi-Fi networks on our street are like, frat boys, please pick up your garbage. It's this, like, hopeless plea. We but, live um, by Hopkins. Yeah, so, so when Dan Higgs was our neighbor, he used to sing on his porch in the evenings, and it was one of my favorite... Yeah, like, he would practice. He would practice, and so the sonic memory of, like, sitting on my porch and hearing Dan Higgs, like, four houses down, like, singing out to the rats in the garbage was a really, like, yeah, was a good... It's like the call to prayer. <laughs> exactly. He's the Baltimore e- call to prayer. He's our imam. <laughs> This has been Essential Tremors. Essential Tremors is produced by me, Matt Byers, and Lee Gardner. Essential Tremors is distributed by WYPR Baltimore and NPR. For more information on Essential Tremors, go to EssentialPodcast.com. Thanks for listening.